1 Samuel 25. Most of us know this. There are moments in our lives that will define us. That if we took a left right then, it would have had career, life, eternal ramifications. And I think maybe I've always been aware of this because there was a commercial, and I've mentioned this commercial before, growing up that I never forgot. I was probably eight or nine years old, maybe 10 years old, I don't know when I saw it, but I was young. And it was the Reagan Say No to Drugs campaign. And I didn't know it was that, but there was this commercial and it shows this man and he's running and you can tell he's running, he's sweating, his, he's giving it his all. And there's a boy's voice that kind of over, is, is dubbed over this man running, sweating. And it says, when I grow up, I wanna be a marathon runner. And so you're thinking, oh, he grew up to be a marathon runner. But as that voice is speaking, the camera zooms out and you see this hand with a blue sleeve come and grabs the shoulder of this man running and tackles him to the ground. And then he gets cuffed and stuffed. And then an adult big booming voice says, no child dreams of growing up to be a drug addict. Say no to drugs, right? And when I was watching that, I'm like, oh, that's scary, right? <laughs> like this guy at some point took a left and his life was changed. We are in the middle of Samuel and it's the preparation of King David. And it's these things that he goes through, hard, difficult times. And up to this point, he's done pretty good. Faced off with a Goliath, did pretty good, right? He, he's in a cave with Saul, the guy that wants to assassinate him and kill him. He could have just shoved the sword in. He doesn't, right? He's passed test after test after test. But today's test is the hardest one. And it will determine what kind of king David will be. And it's gonna be a hard left or a hard right. David, what are you gonna be? And he almost, I'll give it away, he almost becomes Saul 2.0. He is this close to becoming Saul 2.0. But a savior comes and rescues him from himself. Let's go. Fascinating chapter. Verse one, chapter 25. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Interesting. Hey, where's your grandpa Samuel? Right underneath his board. Okay. <laughs> then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Samuel, who's been the constant so far through the book of 1 Samuel, he's the kingmaker. He's a transition from the judges into the king. So he's the kingmaker. He's got the right king headed, hopefully on the right path. His job's done. He goes home. He dies. I think that's why this chapter's so important. Because Samuel's been a mentor of sorts for David. And now that mentor's gone. Can that change somebody? 
Remember Mike Tyson? Growing up, man, it was Iron Mike Tyson. And when I was young, he had a coach slash father figure called Customato. And Customato was the guy that got Mike Tyson what Mike Tyson was when he was great. He was a coach, he was a dad to him, he had the regiment, he trained him, and he was undefeated. And then Customato died. You remember that? And Mike Tyson cleared the deck of all the old Customato guys, and he brought in a whole new crew. And then he fought this guy named Buster Douglas in Tokyo. Remember that? And Buster Douglas beat him. And no one could believe it. Mike Tyson was like 100 to 1 odd to win. Like, he's not, he's just gonna destroy him. Buster Douglas is just a tune-up. And he lost. What happened? He lost his mentor. He lost his dude. So now David has lost his dude. And Samuel's been there for him. If you remember chapter 19, uh, David's afraid for his life. Guess where he runs? To Ramah, to Samuel. He just stays in Samuel's house. Saul hears about it. He sends down assassins to kill David. But these assassins, when they would get to Samuel's yard, what would happen to him? God's spirit would hit them so hard, they'd turn into prophets and start to prophesy. And it happened time and time again. So finally Saul's like, that's it. If you want something done, you gotta do it yourself. So Saul heads down there, hits Samuel's yard. God's spirit hits him. He starts to prophesy. He strips down naked and lays in the yard all night prophesying. I don't know why he does that, but that's the effect that it had on him, right? Now that's pretty good protection, right? They just come and they turn into prophets. This is great. So David now has lost that incredible protection. And it says, he got up and went to the wilderness of Paran. I'm out of here then. I always had this ace in my sleeve. I always had this backup plan. Now it's gone. And so he runs. Death is important. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says this. It is better to go to the house of the morning. Not like mourning, but a funeral. Better to go to a funeral, Matt Heavily version, than a party, because then you remember your end. Like it's during those moments of death that, wow, great things happen to you. You remember your end. I love that. Like if you're gonna go somewhere new right after church tonight and you'd never been there before, you didn't know the way there, what is the first thing that you would do in order to get there? Put the address, the destination, your end point in your maps, right? Because then that tells you, hey, should I turn left? Or it tells you exactly what you're supposed to do right when you leave this building. To me, that's life. You wanna know whether to take a left or right? You gotta know your destination first. That I think Ecclesiastes 7.2 gives us some of the wisest advice on life. You gotta live it backwards. Figure out your destination first and once you know your destination, then you'll know, ah, I need to take a left or a right now to get to that destination out there. I have goals. I'd love to see Grant's Pass be a city on a hill transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Big goal. Well, that's gonna drive what I do today. I want my daughters to walk down the aisle with a boy that at the minimum I don't wanna kill. Hopefully I actually like him, <laughs> right? 
Well, that's gonna be decisions that I've gotta be making today. I'm gonna hold my grandbabies and snuggle them up. That's gonna be decisions I'm making today, how I treat my kids right now. At 75, I wanna sit with my wife on a porch and yell at traffic to slow down. <laughs> and that's gonna be decisions I've gotta be making today, right? Because if I'm not holding that relationship and making sure it is solid, it won't be there when I'm 75. It's, it's you, gotta live it, you gotta live it backwards, consider your end. So death kicks off this chapter. It kind of puts on it like, really important, Samuel dies, okay, pay attention. Verse two. And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. He's got multiple homes. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and behaved badly. And he was a Calebite. I call this the fool and his girl. The name Nabal literally means fool. <laughs> How'd you like to have as a name? How did he get that name? I don't know. Did his dad come in after he was born and be like, yeah, he's a fool. I, I, don't, I don't know, right? It just tells us his name was a fool and he had cash money. May have been a nickname, I don't know. But he is rich. He's a guy that goes to Davos, right? And does all that kind of stuff. He's got it. So you got a fool. And you got Abigail. Her name literally means a father's rejoicing. Right? The fool and a father's rejoicing. And it says she was beautiful and discerning. A fool of a man and a godly gal. How many times have I watched that repeat itself? It's unbelievable to me. Rarely do I see a godly guy with a foolish gal. It happens, but it's rare. What I see happen more often than not is this right here. You got just a foolish Nabal with an incredible godly Abigail. It's, just, it's crazy to me. If I had a nickel for every time I saw it, I'd be rich. I'd buy a baseball bat and beat some sense in them. <laughs> right? It's like, ah. Oh. Godly gals, up the bar. Up the bar. Don't let fools date you. Because when you do, the other fools think, well, I can keep being a fool. No, up the bar, because then it causes everyone else to up their game. Godly gals, don't date fools. So this Abigail girl, it says this about her. She was beautiful. The Hebrew is literally shapely. But no translation will put that in there. Because like, hey, we're not supposed to look at that. The Bible just did. She was shapely, right? You could not miss it. That's what it's saying right here. Shapely woman. I just say, how did he get her? How does a fool get her? I don't know. How to get my wife? Same question. 
So David, we got the fool and his girl. And here's where it's going. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. I like this about David right here. They were pastoring this massive, massive flock, 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. And the whole time that they were there, they were protected by David and his men. I like this because the kings in the Bible their number one job, protect the people. David is doing that job, doing the job of the king without having the position of a king. I like that. You don't need a position or a title to do what God has called you to do. You just do what God has called you to do. So I remember I was working at Met One Instruments and I felt called to teach God's word. I didn't have a title and I was nothing. So guess what I did? I just started Bible studies. Started one at 6.30 in the morning, Tea Time Cafe, Tuesday mornings where we studied through the book of Ezekiel. Really fun at 6.30 in the morning. Get some strange interpretations. And then I had a Bible study at the suites, the vintage suites. Uh, go in there Saturday mornings at 8.30 in the morning. I'd play the same three songs. I did that for two and a half years, same three songs. Luckily, it was the dementia ward, so no one knew it. They're like, all right, these are great songs. And I just taught the Bible. Took over a Friday noon study at the Pizza Hut. Um, it was 20 people when I took it over, and I thought, I'm gonna kill it here. I did, literally. I brought it down to four people like in two weeks, and it stayed that way for like five years. And I'm like, okay. But it was for me just, hey, if this is what I'm called to do, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get reps. I'm gonna start in. This is what David does. Hey, I'm gonna be the king. I feel I'm called the king. Kings protect people. I'm gonna protect these people. The only problem I have is this. What was his motives? What was David's motives? Hey, I'm doing what's right no matter what the response of Nabal and his shepherd. Doesn't matter, because this is the right thing to do and I'm going to do the right thing. Was that what he was saying? Or was David saying, hey, I can get something out of this. Do motives matter? Yeah. Imagine we found a diary by Mother Teresa. And this diary by Mother Teresa, in it, this lady that helped so many of the most destitute, down, broken, destroyed people in the slums of Calcutta, people you could not imagine, she helped them. But in her diary, it's, I hate these people. I hate this job. I can't stand it. But I'm doing this all to become famous. Would that change her opinion of her? 
Oh, dramatically. There is no such diary, right? She did it because she had a heart for people. And we know that's such a great motive. We hold her up as, wow, that's impressive what she did. And we know motives really matter. Why was he doing it? Was he doing it before the Lord because this is the right thing? God, you've called me to this position of king and I'm gonna start that action right now and the response is in your hands. I don't know. Kind of seems like David was angling for something here. And they're both, they're, they're relatives. They're both Judahites. They're from the tribe of Judah. So he's like, hey, I'm your son. We're relatives. And I think David was like, hey, we're good. We're besties. Turns out, Nabal didn't think they were besties. Nabal has a very different opinion of David. Look at verse nine. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. This waited term is Nabal made them wait. He's in there doing his thing, partying, just makes them wait. Like, are you kidding? What is happening in there? How long does it take you to figure this out? It's just, it's just maybe control. Watch what I'll do to you. I'm gonna control you. And Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Obviously he knows who David is. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. He's just a rogue servant from, slave, from Saul. Shall I take my bread, my water, my meat that I have killed for my shepherds and give it to men whom, from whom I do not know where? Eight times he uses the personal pronoun, I, I, I. He has an eye disease. All about Nabal. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all. They didn't even argue. They're just like, okay, later. And David said to his men, Every man strapped on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword and about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the luggage. Whoop-dee. David and 400 very dangerous men. We're gonna see, this is an elite SEAL Team 6 fighting crew. They're deadly. And Nabal, he shows how foolish he is, makes them wait, and then just insults David. Why would he do that? Because he believes he's a great man. Look out for people that believe they're a great man. They're dangerous. There's a story told of Winston Churchill, who's a pretty great man, but maybe it went to his head at the end of his life. And it's in England in the 50s, and he has a servant, and something happens between him and his servant, and uh, they start to reconcile, and, and Winston Churchill says to this servant, you hurt me. And the servant looks back at Winston Churchill and says, yeah, you hurt me. And Winston Churchill responded, yes, but I am a great man. Yeah, it's that. It starts going to people's head. So Nabal's a fool and David is furious. 400 men get armed up and they're gonna go against some shepherds. How many shepherds? Nah, 
You know, you could have a shepherd to take care of 200, 300 sheep. Maybe 50 at the most. 400 armed, elite, fighting men strapping on their armor, going against a bunch of shepherds. It's gonna be a massacre. I just call this dumb and dumber right here. Like, are you two kidding me? It's Judah, maybe Judah's richest man and Judah's wealthiest man, or Judah's richest man and Judah's most famous man squaring off in a dumb massacre. Just TMZ, Israeli, 1000 BC. Are you kidding? Stupid. So, verse 14. But, I love the buts in the Bible. But, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet, the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, and all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Ooh. Nabal called David a servant that's run away from his master, and yet Nabal's own servants are disloyal to him, and they think he's worthless, and they can't talk to him. Just because somebody has money and authority doesn't mean people won't realize they're stupid, right? Just because Nabal has money and authority doesn't mean his servants are like, you're worthless and no one can talk to you. You're full of yourself, you're contemptible, it's I'm just the way I am and you know, no one's gonna change me and I'm rich and powerful, I'm staying this way. Like too much assertive training. You went to too many classes, bro. Pull it back a bit. But that's Nabal. And his own people hate him. He's worthless, you can't talk to him. If you have authority and people feel like they cannot talk to you, something is amiss with your authority. You have misused your authority in some way. Like right there you can tell, mm, he's misused his authority. It's a bummer, okay? But here's what's really sad. David is, David is going to out Nabal Nabal. He's being more foolish than Nabal. One guy insults him. And what's David gonna do? He's bringing 400 men, right? 400 men. What's crazy to me is this. Like, we've watched David take insults from Goliath. No problem. Watch him take him from Saul. No problem. He takes it with patience and poise. And yet in this instance, he goes furious and flips his lid. Why is that? I think he was ready for it with Goliath. I think he was ready with it with Saul. But Nabal the fool comes out of nowhere. It's out of left field for David. And because of that, he's not ready for it. And because he's not ready for it, he flips his lid. Do you know that fools will come out of nowhere? Do you know that? <laughs> they will. Be careful. Be careful. This could happen to any one of us. 
We gotta be really, really careful because we can get disrespected by someone what we think is a fool and we can end up going down this same little trajectory. And we don't follow Jesus, I mean, golly, edit. We don't follow David, we follow Jesus. And Jesus consistently, out of left field, we'll see that in Mark, just attack after attack, responds with patience and poise and eventually says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's the right way. Not getting armored up and 400 people and look out. No, we follow Jesus. So here's what happens. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves. Anybody have 200 loaves laying around at their house? Right? One guy, yeah, I'm a doomsday prepper, man. I got 400. But you will not know where I live. If you come to my house, I will kill you. Right? Like, that's insane. Yeah, grab 200 loaves. And they don't even miss it. Like, this dude's got cash. 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five seas of parched grain, and 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cove of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good, raw for tov. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David's hot, right? He's traveling down with his men and what's he doing? He's ranting. You ever been that way? You're just ranting. You're just like, ah, this is the bitterest statement by David recorded in the Bible. The most bitter, he is ready to lose it. You ever been this way? Just ranting. You're driving home, you get mad about something, you come in, you kick the dog, you yell at the kids, you scream at your husband. Listen, the wrath of man, the wrath of woman does not work the will of God. All that doesn't help God. All that David's doing right here is not helping God. God's not like, oh, thank you. In every conversation, you and I are bringing either gasoline or water. We're either making it hotter and worse and ranting and going crazy, or we're bringing water and a kind answer turns away wrath. David is flipping his lid. And he says this. He says, this fellow, won't even say his name. You know when you're really mad at somebody, when you can't even speak their name. You don't want to hear their name. Like, just, oh, don't even say that guy's name around me. Don't even say that gal's around That's when you're really mad. He's saying, this fellow. Does that remind you of somebody? Saul, chapter 20. When he tries to pin Jonathan to the wall, he can't say David's name. 
David right here is becoming Saulish. He makes a really foolish oath, right? One guy offends him. And what does he say? I'm gonna kill every male. Every male I can find on that ranch. 50, 70, 100 males. I'm wiping them all out. For one dude? Bro, who else made a foolish oath? Saul did. Chapter 14, verse 45. This is almost Saul 2.0. This is why this is so critical in David's life. He needs a savior. He's furious. He's flipped his lid. He's about to make the biggest mistake and become a kind of king that will not be any different than Saul. But good news. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when Yahweh has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or my Lord working salvation himself. And when Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Finally, a voice of reason this is the longest speech by a woman in the entire Old Testament. And it's Abigail saving David from becoming Saul 2.0. Ladies, do you have power? Right? Our culture wants to pit the sexes against each other. Somehow, right? Men versus women, and men are this, and women are this, and it's stupid. It's demonic. It happened in the garden. It happens today. We are designed for this incredible par partnership to complement each other where men are strong and then where men are weak, furious, and foolish. Women come in with their beauty and their discernment and help. And it's that partnership that's beautiful and brilliant. And you see it happening right here. And she does three things. Number one, 
She intercedes for her husband. Notice how she does it. She comes and says, hey, blame me. This beautiful, shapely woman, blame me. Now, is David gonna do that? If she had come and said this, hey, Nabal, my husband's a fool. What would have David said? I know, fall in, I'm taking care of him. Right? What does he do? What does she do, rather? She says, blame me. David can't do that. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. She is brilliant. Blame me. Blame me. Real leaders do that. Real leaders are confident enough to say, hey, I don't care. I'll take all the blame for this situation as long as we can get out of this. Blame me all you want. I don't care. I can handle it. I'm not weak. I'm not worried about people's opinion of me. Blame me. It's my fault. I'm sorry. She's awesome. What breaks my heart for her is this. She married a fool. And how hard that burden must be for her. And I know ladies that have married fools and how hard that burden is for them. She says this, like verse 25, I'm sorry, I should have been keeping watch on him, right? I should have been babysitting my husband. I'm sorry, for a minute I was cooking 200 loaves and this happened, right? Like, oh, golly. It, makes, it breaks my heart for her because this burden that has been placed on Abigail trying to protect her foolish husband from himself. And so many ladies fight that same battle. It breaks my heart. She intercedes. Number two, she speaks prophetically. David, this is your future. You're gonna have a literally lasting house. It's echoed by Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter seven. Like she is prophetically speaking. Listen, you have an incredible, lasting, everlasting legacy in front of you, a sure house, the ESV puts it. It's sure for you. God's gonna hold it up. So because you have a sure house, don't stain the carpet. Don't do something silly and stupid that's gonna put a lasting stain on your house, on your name. Don't. She's prophetic. And then thirdly, she just protects David from being a fool. At the end of the day, it is Abigail and Abigail alone who prevents him from being a fool. And she does it like this. She says, you're a king, you're better than this. You're gonna be prince of Israel. You're better than this. This is below you. This would be like a president going to a little league game and getting in a fight with the umpire. We'd be like, dude, that's stupid, come on. You're better than this. David, you're better than this. You're a king. Ladies, that is the best way to get to a man. Do you know that? My wife does this. I can remember it like yesterday. 10 years ago, I was in the middle of school, super busy season at Edgewater, teaching every Sunday and every Wednesday, just a lot, just packed. And so I finally got away with my family over to Brookings and we had our motor home, we were parked on the beach and I just wanna play with my kids, that was it. They're all 10 years younger, so they still enjoyed playing with their dad, you know? So it was fun, so I was like, yeah! And then all these people from Edgewater showed up. And I'm just like, golly, and then conversations and this, and I, I wasn't bad, but I was just kinda like, ah, ah. And that night, this is what my wife Charity said to me. She just said this, hey, you weren't your best today. And there's so much more to you, and that's why I love you. 
And I just went, yeah, okay, all right. And for the next like six weeks, I was good, man. Filled my tank. I caught a loving slap. What Abigail did to David was a loving slap, right? Brilliant. Ladies, you have a power. You have a power. How does David respond? And David said to Abigail, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and working salvation with my own hand. Such an important point. For as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you. Who gets hurt in war? The ladies, the kids. Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there would not have been left to Nabal as much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. He saved from Saul 2.0. And here's why. What would have Saul done in this situation? I think he would have cut her head off. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 22. The priests, the very priests, what do he do? He massacres 85 of them. Why? Because they dared defy him. They dared stand up to him. Saul could not stand losing face. Go back to chapter 14, chapter 15, excuse me. When Samuel tells Saul, bro, you blew it. The kingdom's being pulled away from you. And then Samuel turns to leave and Saul grabs a hold of him, literally tears his robe and says, don't leave. Walk out with me before the people. I don't wanna be ashamed in front of the people. He didn't care that the kingdom had been taken from him. He just wanted to save face in front of the people that day because he cared too much about what people thought of him. David could care less about that, right? In front of his 400 men who he'd got all riled up and he'd been just ranting along the path. I can just hear him ranting. He's like, oh, I'm a blow it case. I'm so sorry, you're right, I'm stupid. In front of his 400 men. That's a man that'd rather be, that will be talked to, can be talked to. A man who says being right is more important. I'll be corrected in front of the 400 men that I respect totally. That's the difference between David and Saul. He could be corrected. That's I think why David would write in Psalm 139, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the path everlasting. I think he was remembering this chapter right here. Oh, I know what can happen. I know my lid can flip. I know I can go furious. I know I can make stupid decisions. Search my heart. Protect me from doing that again. And we'll see in 2 Samuel with a guy named Shimei, David has learned his lesson. He doesn't respond to fools anymore like this. It's good. So Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the 
morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, Yahweh struck Nabal, and he died. Abigail's fearless, is she not? She probably could have hid this thing. Guy was drunk, man, 200 loaves, maybe, maybe we ate more last night. She's not willing to do that. She honestly tells her husband this is what happened. His heart dies within him. I don't know why, maybe it's emotions. We're triune beings, you know, at least, body, soul, spirit, and we're connected together, right? If you've ever had your heart break, you know this. It affects your physical being. Maybe it dislodged, I don't know what. I don't know. A clot or something, he has a stroke. Ultimately, it was God judging him for his foolishness. And I wonder, I wonder if the people were sad, <laughs> right? Any of the shepherds are like, ah, oh, praise the Lord. I mean, that's really bad. Sorry to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. And David now has a reason to trust God so much more. I was gonna take this on myself. I was gonna work my salvation. Oh, right. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I'll repay. Right, right. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be Yahweh. Can we do that now? <laughs> Somebody don't like dies? Yeah! <laughs> I mean, that's what David does. <laughs> Who has avenged? The insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Yahweh has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel. They said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Let's get married, All right? The wicked witch of the West is dead, woohoo! Let's get married. She's a widow, she's a snap-eye, and she's got cash. David's fortune changed in a moment right here, right? Like, it's looking up now. I'm not gonna have to beg for food anymore. 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, looking good. Now, it does mention polygamy. It's recorded but never condoned by God in the Bible. God is Genesis 2, 24. One man, one wife, one life. It's repeated by Jesus. It's repeated by Paul. It is the measure. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? This is a hint that David could have a weakness for other men's wives, right? You're seeing a little hint of it right here, like, uh-oh, bro, be careful. Couple quick things, and then we'll be done. I got four minutes. Number one, <laughs> let me use all my time. David writes seven psalms during this time. 
when he's running, when he's hiding, when he's fleeing, very hard times. But I think difficulty actually makes us better worshipers. I've talked to so many people that have gone through great difficulty, emotionally, physically, spiritually, whatever it is, and they've said, you know, before this, I knew about Jesus, now I know Jesus. Difficulty. He writes, he worships. Number two, in life, we'll either react or we'll respond. The two men react foolishly and furiously. Abigail responds. How do we become a people that respond? I pray James 3 so much. Give me a wisdom. I know I can be a foolish person. I know I can make mistakes. So Jesus today, give me a wisdom that's from above, that's peaceable, that's pure, that's sincere, that works righteousness and is sown in peace by those who make peace. We can ask for that wisdom. And James tells us, God will give it to us. I pray for that wisdom all the time. The moment something foolish happens, you stop, breathe, and pray for God's wisdom in that moment. I don't wanna react. I wanna respond to this like Abigail did. Help me. Number three, death does not end God's work. Samuel's gone. David freaks out a bit. He runs off into, you know, Moan, like, oh no, what's gonna happen? I've always trusted this guy, I've always, right? And who does God raise up? Abigail. Just because somebody dies doesn't mean God's work ends. We put so much emphasis on people, but people come and go. God's work will continue no matter who the people are. We, we trust in him alone not in people. People will disappoint you. People will leave. People will die. God's work continues. And then fourthly and lastly, this marriage to Abigail not only makes David very wealthy now, but also here's what happens. He's really famous in this area. And now he's really wealthy in this area. It's the area of Hebron. And David kind of makes his center there and kind of, move, we'll see, it moves a little bit. But his influence on this area is super great because of these events. And when we get into 2 Samuel, David becomes king of Hebron for seven years before he's made king of the entire region. It's like God knew, David, you need to be here. These events need to happen because of your future. David almost blows it. God sends Abigail to protect him. And the end is brilliant and beautiful. Do you know that? You can feel like you've got a foolish boss or foolish people or just, why, Lord, why, Lord? Because I got a Hebron for you. All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's what you see here. So Jesus, thank you for the Abigails that every single one of us have experienced who have come in at that right moment. We are furious and foolish and saved us. May we go out and be Abigails for other people, helping them 
protecting them, interceding for them, speaking words of prophecy to them. So fill us with your spirit and send us out today, we pray. And we ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.